Okay, welcome everybody. We're so super excited to have everybody here in person. Um, thanks to all the regulars for coming and all the uh, semi-regulars or brand new people. Very, very happy to have everybody here, as always. Um, and we're extra happy to ha be joined today by Rabbi Mir Elkabaz, all the way from Yerushalayim, Meisharim, Shmuel Navi, uh, Leslie and Steels, uh, yeah. Bathurst and Clark, originals. <laughs> Don't forget, so, associated. Associated, no, chat, associated. you got it. Associated is the Ashkenazi version. Atotiated. Atotiated, yeah. right. <laughs> we're, that's a good one. Did you get that? We're super happy to have him back here. Uh, it's been a couple of years. Well, I was here a few months ago. What are you talking about? How, last time I was here? Yeah. I was here in uh, November, October. Good yeah. morning. Well, thanks for saying hi to me. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so we're back to do, uh, to do another sheer. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're, we're so excited. Um, th today's shir is going to be dedicated by uh, Reb Shmuley Fuchs, um, Lilu Nishmas, um, Leah Bas Shmuel Menachem Mendel, and uh, also it should be a, a Rafua Shlema for Shmuley as well. He's a little bit under the weather. And uh, without, uh, without further ado, uh, let's, uh, let's get the shir going. Yes. Okay. Okay, shalom everybody. Nice to be back at home, uh, old home, old home town, like you said. This class will be divided in two parts. The first will be the initial concepts that we're going to bring in tonight. And the goal is the follow-up at the end of the class, which is to present to you, I guess the first time this is being done in 200 years, in this format, we're going to call it the 40-day challenge. Okay? It's a challenge, visit Hashem, something I don't think you've never experienced, hopefully... It's something that you will hook up to and connect to. First, we want to lay the foundation of what we're going to speak about tonight. The foundation is from a story in the Talmud, in the Gemara. Masechet, Tractate, Bechorot, page 8b. A very, very wild story. So wild that I think there, the Maharsha, on the, on the Gemara, the commentary of the Maharsha, he says, from this story, you see that all the secrets of the Torah are hidden in the stories, the Agadah, of the Talmud. And this story really sticks out on the secrets behind it. Okay, um, 30 years ago, Feldheim put out a book called The Juggler and the King, which are the interpretations, the commentary of the Gaon of Vilna on the stories of the Gemara, including the story that we're going to go into tonight. We're presenting the commentary of Rabbi Nachman's main disciple, Rav Nossin, from his book, Likutei Alachot, where he opens up in an amazing way this entire story which we're going to go into, it's called the story of the wise men of Athens. Alright? The entire translation of the story and Rav Nossan's explanation can be found totally in English in the Likute Moran in English, volume 4 at the very back of the Breast of Research Institute publication, translation. We're going to go into parts of the story that we want to elaborate tonight and to get to the final point, Mizat Hashem. The story is like this. There was a sage in the time of the Talmud, his name was Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania. If you have visited Tzfat recently or ever before, and you're familiar a little with how Tzfat is, the cemetery, the grave of the Arizal, and there's the Mikra of the Arizal, in between them, down below, there's a grave of Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania. The Arizal says, people mistakenly call it the grave of Hoshea ben Be'eri, and it's a mistake. Till today, it says there, Hoshea ben Be'eri, the Arizal, Rav Chaim Vital writes the name of Arizal, that is wrong, that's really the gravesite of Yeshua ben Hananiah. He was called Chakima Dihudae, the wise man of the Jewish people, because he was very cunning and sharp, and to the extent that he was the representative to go to Rome on behalf of the Jewish community in the Holy Land when there was persecution or whatever, when there was uh, all types of restrictions and judgments and all types of uh, taxations, or had to do redemption of people, Pidyon Shvuim, he was always sent to Rome on behalf of the Jewish people. The emperor of Rome really liked him. The emperor of that time, he admired him for his wisdom. So because of that, the emperor of Rome would like from time to time to, to converse and speak about wisdom and, and, and ideas of knowledge with Rabbi Yishe So once he asked him to follow, following, what is the gestation, pregnancy period of a snake? So Rabbi Yishe answered, seven years. So he says it can't be. The Roman emperor said it can't be. The wise men of Athens, who were very wise, they said it's only three years. He said it's not true. The snake was already pregnant beforehand four years earlier, seven years. So he said, but we see that the snake continues to mate, okay? Which Rashi on the spot points out, 
in this human beings are different than animals, that animals, once they become pregnant, there's a gestation period, uh, they cease to mate, whereas human beings can continue. So Rishi Bechanani answered, in this, the snakes are like human beings, that they continue to mate even after they're pregnant. So the, the emperor said, but one second, these wise men, they're, they're pretty wise. So he said, I'm smarter than them. <laughs> I'm wiser than them. So the, so the emperor said, I want you to prove it to me. I want you to bring to me the wise men of Athens. Bring them to Rome. Because they're all the way in Athens. Bring them to Rome from Greece. He asked, how many are they? And he said, he said 60. So Rabbi Shua bin Hananya said to, them, to the Roman emperor, prepare me a ship, a boat, a giant ship with 60 rooms. And in each room put 60 chairs. 60 times 60. So he prepared on that ship with 60 rooms, 60 chairs in each room. And Rabbi Shubin Hananya set sail for captain, obviously, to Athens. He arrives in Athens, okay, he, he gets off the shore, and no one wants to tell him where the academy of the wise men of Athens is. So he goes to the local butcher, and he finds a butcher carving an animal out. You know, cutting up an animal. He asked the butcher, how much for your head? Meaning the head of the animal. And he said, half a zoos. That's the currency, half a zoos. So Rabbi Shubin Hananya put the half a zoos on the counter. He said, okay, give me your head. So the butcher cut off the head of the animal and put it on the table, on the counter. Here you go. He said, no, no, I said your head. <laughs> your head. You understood the head of the animal. But I said your head. And in Athens, that was considered a kinyan, a complete transaction. Even though it was a misunderstanding, if the wording was right, you can't go back on it. So the butcher said, what do you want me to do now? You want my head for half a zoos? What do you want me to do? So you want to get out of this? He said, yes. I want you to show me the entrance to the Academy of the Wise Men of Athens. He said, no, no, no. Please don't ask me this. This is dangerous. If they find out that I told you where the entrance is, they're going to they're gonna kill me. So Rishon said, don't worry, I have a plan. I want you to take a bundle of reeds, you know, like the schach that we use for, for Sukkot, right? There are a bundle of reeds. Put it on your shoulder and start walking towards the entrance. I'll follow way behind you, Okay. So when you reach the entrance, in the front of the entrance of the academy, pretend you're taking a break, put down the bundle of reeds, like pretend you're schwitzing, whatever, taking a break, and then continue. I will know that's the entrance. So he did that. The butcher went in front of him. He stopped at the entrance to the academy. He, like he pretended that he's taking a break, whatever, and he continued. And like this, Rabbi Shabin Khanaya found the entrance to the academy. What did he find? He found an, an entrance with a, with a very wide threshold, with guards positioned on the outside, and guards position, positioned in the inside. And the whole threshold, the mashkof, the actual entrance, was paved or was spread with bran, subin, bran. Why bran? Bran is unique, or it sticks out, that when there are footprints on the bran, it shows pretty clearly. So Rabbi Shibin Hanani was examining what's going on here. He understood that the guards were, killing, were, were, were commanded to kill anyone who would leave, the academy or anyone who would enter so the brand would be to indicate on which direction the footsteps are going if there were footsteps going from the outside into the academy he saw there was a patrol of the 60 wise men the wise men of athens they would patrol and see if the guards are doing their job they would see if there are footprints in the brand if they saw footprints going into the academy they would kill the guards on the outside and if they saw in their patrol that there were footmarks leaving the academy going outside. They, he would, they would kill the guards on the inside. So what did Rabbi Shul ben Hananya do? He switched his sandals and he walked backwards, but up to the edge of the threshold. Why? Because he understood that commands only to kill a person who completely crossed the entire threshold from the beginning to the end. And they were warning him, don't cross, don't cross, we'll kill you. And he walked delicately, carefully up to the edge and then he walked back in his footsteps, waiting to see what would happen. And when the patrol, lo and behold, when the patrol came of the wise men of Athens, they saw footsteps going out. So they killed the two guards who were standing on the inside. And so in the meantime, there's no guards on the inside. And then they cleaned the brand again to make it fresh. And they continued their patrol, whatever. And this time he walked in with the sandals normally. And again, up to the edge, but not completely. So that way they can't kill him. And he walked back in his footsteps, waited to see. And when the patrol came again, they saw the footsteps going from outside inside. They killed the guards on the outside. So the entrance has no guards on the inside and no guards on the outside. And he walked right in. He went into the main room of the academy. And he saw a giant room with two stages, two levels, where the younger wise men of Athens were located on top. 
and the older ones were located on the bottom. He saw that this was a trick. He saw that if he would say greetings to the older ones on, the, on below, the ones on top said, but we're on top. We're, we're much more important. We're on top. Now, it's true we're, we're younger, but we're, we're on top. And if he would say greetings to the ones on top, the older ones said, but we're older. He got the trick. So he said to all of them, Shalom Aleichu, Shalom to all of you. And he got out of that trick. Then he asked him, who are you? And what do you want? What are you doing here? He said, I'm Rabbi Yishob ben Hananiah. I'm the wise one of the Jewish people. And I've come to learn from you. So he, they said to him, okay, very well. We, we have a lot of challenges to, to ask, to, to present to you. We want to challenge you and to see how smart you are. So he said to them, very well. If you guys win me over, then you can do with me as you wish. But if I win you over, I request that all of you come to eat lunch with me on my ship. So they said, okay, nice deal. And he started asking questions. He asked 20 challenges and he broke all of them. We're going to go to one of them, but just how funny the challenges are. Here's an example of another one. They brought in front of him two pieces of cheese. They asked him, can you please tell us which cheese comes from a white goat and which cheese comes from a black goat? So what did he do? He brought two eggs. He said, first tell me which comes from the white hen and which comes from the black hen. Okay? That's how funny and silly these arguments are. But he won all of them. The one we're going to go into tonight is where they challenged him like this, as following. They asked him, where is the center of the universe? So he raised his finger like this, and he said, right over here. They said to him, Mi who says, who says you're right? So he said to them, bring a measuring cord and you'll see that I'm right. Here's the center of the universe. Okay. We're going to go into this to expand how Rabbi Nachman opens this up. He won them with all the arguments, okay? And they're on their way with him to his ship. Before they leave the land of Athens, he had a sack with him that he brought, and he filled the sack with earth from Athens, and he put it in the bag. And then he led them on the ship one at a time. He took the first one, he put him in the first room, and he said, sit here, and he closed the door. So what did the wise man see? He sees 59 empty chairs. So what does he assume? Ah, the other 59 will be coming soon. So he's waiting and waiting and waiting. What happens when you wait a long time? You get bored, and you start to lose it a little, okay? You're like, uh, you're waiting a long time. So he, he took the second one, put him in the second room, and he says, sit here. He sees 59 chairs. The same scenario. All they're coming in. They'll be here soon. And he did that for all the 60 rooms. He put one in each room, and then he told the captain, now set sail to Rome. They set sail from Athens to Rome. They went to the Mediterranean. And while in the sea, they passed by what's called in Hebrew a Bay Blue A, an eddy. Eddy is like a tornado in the sea. And the ship passed the edge, barely making it, but just making it over the edge of the tornado. As it passed this eddy in the sea, Rabbi Shobin Hananiah saw three images above the sea in that area. He saw an image of hands on the head, an image, a second one of hands on the heart, and a third image of hands behind the back. At that point, he took a jug, an empty jug from the ship that he had with him. He lowered himself on the edge of the ship as it was passing the eddy, okay? And he filled the jug with water content from the eddy. The water content quality of the tornado water, he filled that up in the jug and went back onto the ship. And the ship continued, making it to Rome. He took them off the ship and they were very subdued at that point because they were waiting and waiting and waiting and they were out of it. So he brought them in front of the emperor. He said to the emperor, here are the 60 wise men of Athens. He looked at them. He says, these are not the wise men of Athens. He says, you took some people from the marketplace. I don't know these guys. Who are these guys? So the Shubhachanya says, wait a second. He opened the sack that he had with the earth from Athens. And he sprinkled it on their faces. So they smelt the scent of their homeland, the, the earth of their hometown. And they woke up again. And they began to acting again, aristocratic and haughty and all that. The haughtiness that they had as being the wise men of Athens. And the emperor said, yeah, these are, these, are, these are the wise men of Athens. I know these guys. These are they. So then, then the emperor asked Rabbi Shimon I want you to do away with them. I want you to kill all of them. Can you kill all of them? He said, yes. Bring me an empty urn for, for water, to fill up with water. He brought him an empty urn. He took the water from the jug, from the eddy, the water content of the eddy. He poured it into the urn. And he challenged all of the 60 wise men as the following. He says, your job, if you want to leave here, I want you to fill this urn up with water and you can go. So they brought buckets of water to fill up into the urn. But anytime they put water into the urn, the initial water content from the eddy just swallowed up the water that they kept on adding in. They couldn't figure this out. This is totally irrational. Where'd the water go? There's no hole in the urn. 
So they kept on adding water and kept on getting swallowed up by the initial water from the eddy. And they kept on adding water and water because they couldn't accept it. It was totally irrational against logic. They couldn't accept it. They kept on pouring water until they all died from exhaustion. This is the story. And obviously there's deep, deep secrets hidden in the story. We're going to touch upon a few of them, but we're going to get to the story of the, the point of the challenge of the center of the universe. This concept that of the snake and the, pre- the pregnancy period of snake being three years or an additional four years, seven years, what's the argument here? He was saying, the, the Roman emperor, in the name of the wise men of Athens, that they, respect, they, they represent people who pers- pursue exclusive wisdoms of this world, detached from Hashem, detached from Emuna, just belief in this, the system of this world, where they say, the way to succeed in producing the wisdom of the snake, the idea of a snake corresponds to the Yetzirah, like the primordial snake, evil, in order for a snake to produce, that's the idea of a pregnancy, to give birth, it only requires three years. The three years correspond to what's called the three levels of wisdom. It's called Chokhmah, Bina, Da'at. Knowledge, understanding, which is the development of the knowledge, and Da'at, the conclusion, what you do. Everybody in life uses these three, the combinations of these three, the deduction, the knowledge, the wisdom, okay? So they claim, the atheists, that to, to succeed in producing wisdom of development of this world, of worldly matters and worldly success, all you need is to work on the brain, on the mind, the intellect. That's the key to succeeding in producing the wisdom of the snake. Meaning that you can represent humane ideas, moralistic ideas, even if there's no God in the picture, there's no Torah in the picture, there's no Emun in the picture, you can still be a good person and produce and be beneficial for society and mankind just by developing the three wisdoms. He said, no, 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 no. There's four missing also. It's not just the three. It's another four years corresponding to the four elements. The Rambam teaches, like with all we learned in chemistry, that they always add another element. 67 elements in chemistry and the 68, 69. They always add, they always adding another element. The Rambam says there's four basic elements for all of creation. Earth, wind, fire, and water. And the attributes of a human being are, are emanating from an imbalance or a balance of the four. For example, someone who's angry, so it's an imbalance of fire. There's too much fire, right? Someone who's depressed and heavy, he's heavy, he's like earth, more earthy. Each one has a representation from and, and is drawn from imbalance of the four midot, they're called. They're four elements where the person's midot and attributes, his joy, his being positive, his being humble, it's emanating from these four being balanced and also the opposite of an imbalance. Where Bishop ben Hanani was telling the emperor, that these people who claim to be so moralistic and ethical and they're, they're atheists and they have no God in their world, don't believe them. They're also the most perverted people, the most corrupt people, the most upside down people. Like Rav Nussin says, you have no idea what's happening behind closed doors. When you see Robin Leach on the Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, you remember that show? Right? And they show you, look at these people, they're nice houses, Lamborghini and everything, and you get jealous. You say, look, that's a good life. You have no idea what's happening behind closed doors. And also the Nobel Prize winners, these guys, they come and everything, and they develop this and that type of bomb and this and that. And you think, oh, such a good person and everything. You have no idea what's happening behind closed doors. And he said, Rav says, don't get fooled. The world tries to fool you. Yeah, they're ethical, they're moralistic and everything. But you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. They won't tell you, obviously. We know from the Torah. So he was telling me, Rabbi Shemin Hananya, to produce, for a snake to produce, it's not just developing the brain to go to university and develop your mind and become more knowledgeable and understanding. It's also you have to pass through a blemishing of the four midot. You have to go down, 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 breaking your morals and ethics in order for the snake to produce. You want worldly knowledge? It comes with a price. Four. Okay? This was an example of the argument between them at the beginning. Another thing we'll touch upon there's many, we can't go through the whole story because it'll take forever. You can see for yourself in the English translation of the Kutimran, the entire story and every part is amazing. The other point I want to go into, because it's related to what we're going to go to at the end of the class, is the idea of the 60 rooms. First of all, there are the 60 wise men of Athens, 60 rooms, 60 chairs. What's the idea of the 60 rooms? We have in the Torah, the number 60, where? In the Gemara. We have what's called in the Mishnah, Shishim 
Masechtot. The Talmud is broken into what's called 60 tractates. The Talmud is the foundation of us learning how to be a Jew. We have, I'm Jewish because my parents are Jewish, fine. But we have a background on how to be Jewish, which is taken from the Torah. And the basis of the Torah on conduct is based on the Talmud. And the Talmud is broken down into 60 tractates, teaching us conduct in every area of life, divided in 60 categories. And to break that, there are 60 wise men of Athens who try to break the morals and ethics and guidelines of the Torah. That's why the number 60 here and the number 60 over there. He subdued them. He made them bored and, and, and subdued by putting each one in a room, adding up to 60 rooms, corresponding to each chamber, each room. A room in Hebrew is called the Hechal. The 60 tractates, the Arizal calls them 60 chambers. To perceive higher wisdom, the basis is the 60 sections of the Talmud, of the Mishnah. That's the key for us to perceive true wisdom. So he put them in 60 rooms, meaning he used the power of the Torah to subdue them. But it wasn't enough. He also put 60 chairs in each room. The chairs, Rav Nossin points out, the idea of a kise refers to the kise. Who's, who's called a, when you say a chair, normally the maximum um, presentation of a chair is a throne. Who sits on the throne normally? A king. By the Jewish people, who was the climax of being a king? David HaMelech. David HaMelech as a king, what was his representation? Va'ani tfila. He said, I am prayer. King David's whole thing was davening, to show the Jewish people the power of prayer. That's all book of Tehillim. Why Tehillim is such a big thing in Judaism? Because it teaches us how we win our battles in life, which is what? Davening, prayers, okay? So each room, each tractate that he used to subdue one of the 60 wise men of Athens had in it 60 chairs. What's the idea of multiplications of 60 and 60? That you need to do a lot of davening, a lot of prayer in life. To, why then? Wow, Baruch Hashem, sorry, but 68, uh, sorry, but each room had 60. Right, right, right. That's, that's, that's a lot, of, that's a big number. So 60 times 60, right, right. But each tractate, the idea of having 60 chairs in each room, is the idea that you have to do a lot of praying in life to activate the power of each tractate. In other words, the holiness of the Torah, to subdue the wise men of Athens, is not just learning Torah, but it's also praying about the Torah. We're going to go into this, God willing, at the end of the class, visit Hashem. Just keep that in mind. This is two ideas from the story. The rest, like I told you, you can see in the English translation and the commentary available in English, you can see there. I want to go tonight to the, the main topic, the main theme, is the discussion between, the challenge between them about the center of the universe, right? He stuck up his finger. They asked him, where's the center of the universe? He stuck, stuck up his finger, he said right over here. They said, Miemar, who says, he said, Bring a measuring cord, and you'll see that I'm right. That's a simple translation. Rabbi Nachman opens it up like this. The center of the universe. What is the center of the universe? You would think Yerushalayim. Yes, we say Yerushalayim is the center of the universe. But really, Yerushalayim is representing the real center of the universe, which is the infinite light. Hashem is called Or Ein Sof. What does it mean, the infinite light? Anytime a person in life, whether Jew or non-Jew, whether spiritual or, or physical, has an ambition and a pursuit to do something positive with themselves in their life, it's basically Hashem's infinite light shining on that person. The word in Hebrew for light is Or, Aleph, Vav, Resh. Aleph is Gematria 1, Vav is 6, Resh is 200, that's 207. The exact same numerical value of the word Ein Sof, infinite light. Hashem is called the infinite light because He's infinite. He's shining anytime a person has an uplifting experience in life. If it's an ambition to pursue university, college, to open a business, to get married, to start a family, to learn Torah, to start a new devotion, to get up on time. Any area of life that a person has light is coming from the infinite light. You just don't see it. Because there's a blockage, there's a wall. It's called in the Kabbalah, a prisa, like a mechitza, like a type of a wall. And past the wall comes the light to everybody, not knowing where it comes from. Everyone who has light in their life, it's basically coming from the infinite, infinite light. Because this world in itself is complete darkness. It's only that Hashem shines light and meaning and joy in this world that you experience light and meaning and joy. But you don't see where it's coming from because there's a blockage. 
but it's coming from the infinite light. Or, like we said, is the numerical value of the infinite one. In Sof Hashem's called the infinite one. It's Him, the light that's shining into a person. And because of that, everyone, by natural tendency, when they have light in their life, what does a normal person do when they have light? They run after it. The classic example is the receiving of the Torah in Har Sinai. Hashem told twice to Moshe Rabbeinu, I want you to hagbel tahar. Surround the mountain, Mount Sinai, with a, with a wall, a boundary. Why? Because I know when I come down on Har Sinai to give the Torah, when the Jews see this experience, they're going to drop everything and just run towards it. And that's going to make them disappear. Because Hashem created the world in a way that in this concealment called the world, the world in Hebrew is called Olam, or Ayn Vav Lamid Mem, which has the same root for as a concealment, Ha'alama, concealment. This world is, is a concealment. That means complete darkness. If a person overdoes the border and goes too high in connecting to this light, he'll disappear. He'll dis disintegrate. He'll melt. He'll just, just disappear in there. That's not the goal. Hashem wants us to be in this world, physical, and yet be able to reveal Hashem's presence. Because of this, by the way, the Gemara teaches, our sages teach us, that when Mashiach comes, the only festival that will continue to exist is Purim. What's the difference between Purim? There's no more Pesach, no more Shavuot, no more Sukkot. Why? Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, they're all to commemorate what? Zecher, Litziat, Mitzrayim. Commemorating the leaving of Egypt. What happened in the leaving of Egypt? Open miracles, 10 plagues, splitting of the Red Sea. Who's not going to believe? When you have open miracles in life, you're not going to believe. Of course you're going to believe. You see someone walking on water, flying in there. You're not going to believe. Of course you're going to believe them when you have supernatural miracles. The thing is, for Hashem, it is the, greater, the greatest accomplishment when He becomes made known through the Teva, through the nature. The timing of Achashverosh and Mordechai and Esther and Haman, the whole story of the Megiddo, where the timing was so, so precise that you see this divine prophet. You have to be stupid not to see it. For Hashem, that is the greatest accomplishment that without open miracles, huji buji, Hashem becomes revealed, open, uh, revealed through the nature. That is the greatest miracle. Because of this, Rabbi Nachman, he teaches that Mashiach is going to conquer the entire world without shooting a single missile. You think, you know, Mashiach's coming, Armageddon, Gogan Magog, boom, missiles, that. It's not going to be like that. He's going to have the whole world at his feet with just the power of speech. He's going to get everybody with faculty of speech and break everybody. Break who has to be broken and lift up whoever has to be lifted up. That's the power of Mashiach Bezat Hashem. So going back, this is why we're here. Why does Hashem put us in the physical where we have to eat and drink and, and earn a living and drive a car and go to work and walk on a sidewalk and live in the physical existence? Because it's specifically in this physical constriction of life that He wishes that we reveal Him at the maximum level. It's such a hidden existence. And yet, to recognize Hashem in your life, to have complete emunah that Hashem is guiding every stage, for Hashem, this is the biggest accomplishment. This is the greatest thing. This is the light that Hashem wants us while in the darkness. But nonetheless, the nature of every person is to look for a spiritual high. I mean, that's why unfortunately people, they don't get it in life, so they turn to drugs and addiction and everything, because life is not giving them what's called sipuk, enough nourishment and sustenance and contentment. They have to turn to other means, which are not the proper way. But life can do that if life is lived properly and besimcha and facing the challenges in a positive frame, which we're going to go into Mizat Hashem. So he, they asked him, where is the center of the universe? How does a person connect directly to the infinite light? Okay, but it's coming from the infinite light. Great. How do I connect to it directly if I want to connect to it? Because it is possible technically that a Jew with his devotions can perceive the infinite light as great as possible, yet still be in a physical existence. When you have that, you have everything in life. What the, the, the Gemara says, and Pirkei Avot, if you remember, Dat kanita machasarta, Dat chasarta makanita. When you have knowledge, you have everything. And when you don't have knowledge, what do you have? When you have knowledge of Hashem in your life, that Hashem loves you, and then He sends you everything you need, you can be happy with a tea biscuit or caviar. It doesn't make a difference. You can be happy with the four-door garage house, or the 50 cubic meter little apartment with two bedrooms for six, eight people. And you can be happy if you have that dot. You you, you, whatever comes your way, you're good with it. Because you have that dot. Accept it. 
Whereas someone who doesn't have any dot gave him all the wealth in the world, it's not enough. He's never happy, never happy. He's like just swallowing it up, okay? So, going back, this is the light of the infinite light that we strive. They asked him, how does a person reach this light? So he stuck up his finger and he said, here, through this, here, right over here. Rabbi Nachman interprets what he said. He stuck up his finger and said, here, as if to say through the concept of the fingers, the concept of the hands. The hands are the concept of what's called blessing. Blessings are channeled through the hands. The classic example is what we see in the parasha, parasha Shmini, when, beautiful, when the tabernacle was erected on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, Aharon got up, it says, And Aharon lifted up his hands to the nation, he blessed them. So from that pasuk, we learn all the laws of what's called Duchan. With a coin, he raises his hands. Okay? And anytime there's blessings, when a parent wants to bless his children on Friday night, for example, they put their hands on the head, right? Because hands are a channel for blessing. This is unbelievable what the Zohar says. The Zohar says that Hashem designed the human hand with ten fingers shaped like pipelines. We have human fingers, like, like an animal that has like sometimes a turtle has like tiny fingers, whatever. We have nice the Midrash says Hashem designed the human being with beautiful fingers that are long and stretched like pipelines because that's what they actually are. The ten fingers of a human being activate the ten levels of energy called the ten spherot, levels of energy, which are connected to the secret of creation which was created, if you look in Parsha Genesis, Bereshit, Asara Ma'amarot Shebaim Nivra Olam, the ten utterances with which Hashem created the world are hidden and hinted into and activated by the ten fingers. Because of this, you should know, the Zohar gives a warning. A Jew should never raise his hands empty-handed. Never raise them empty. Because whenever a Jew raises his hands, automatically the ten levels of energy are activated to bring down abundance. And if it's not accompanied with a prayer, like you say, Hashem, help me. I'm lifting my hands, Hashem, help me, please. If it's not accompanied with a prayer, you're activating ten levels of energy. And if you're not davening, so it goes to the evil side. Where do you see that? In the hand itself. In the hand, on the other side, we have the fingernails. What are the fingernails? The biggest impurity of the human being. We, in the morning, we call, we call the morning washing, what do we call it in Yiddish? Nagel Vasar. Nagel is na- nails, Vasar. We wash the, the nails, right? Because the nails are the biggest impurity. Where are they located? On the channels of blessing, you have the biggest impurity. The nails on the other side. When a person raises his hand, God forbid, and he doesn't say a, pl- a blessing with it or prayer, so he activates channels of energy, but it goes to the other side. But if somebody's dancing and he's storing his hand left. So the Ramak says, this doesn't apply, for example, when you're working, you're hammering, you have to lift up your hand, you have to do things, you're exercising. It doesn't apply that. It's, it's, it, the, the wording of the Zohar is rek, rekanu. When a person raises it just like he's going for a walk, and he decides to open his arms and raise them like that for nothing. Even when you stretch, some people say, the Kabbalists they say, when you stretch, try to stretch without opening your fingers. Like, stretch with the fist so you don't open the hands. In our context, though, the more a person, we're going to go into this, the more a person works on himself, the more blessing he activates to his hands. Okay, we see, for example, Yaakov Avinu blessed Ephraim and Menashe, Sikelet Yadav, right? It says he switched his hands, and that, it, that was the channeling of bracha through the hands. Yaakov Avinu was able to do that. We're going to Yaakov Avinu and Sikelet in a minute. But he, showed, he was telling them the way a person can tap into the infinite light is by the hands. By bracha, blessing to the hands. But the question is, what is bracha? When you hear the word bracha, what do you think automatically? Oh, tons of money, oh, health, a lot of children. The real bracha, the Zohar says, is the bracha of wisdom, like we just said now. When you have the bracha of wisdom, that is the main blessing. The Zohar says on the word for blessing, baruch, you have bet, resh, vav, chaf, baruch, stands for the four following words. Birchot Rosh Umekor Kol The blessings of the mind, of the head, the brain, intellect, being the source Umekor Kol, the source of everything. The main bracha is Sechel. That's the wording by Yaakov Avinu, by the way, when it says that he switched his hands to bless Ephraim and Asher, what does it say? Sikel et Yadav. He wittingly, purposely switched his hands. But the wording the Pasuk uses is sechel, intellect. From this you see that the idea of blessing, the main blessing you can give to somebody is the blessing of wisdom. King Solomon, for example, when Hashem told King Solomon, 
Ask me whatever request you want. What did King Solomon say to Hashem? I want the blessing of wisdom. And he could have asked, I want to be a millionaire, I want to have this, I want the Holy Land to spread to all of Asia or whatever. No, he said, I want the blessing of wisdom. That's what King Solomon did. He was wise because he asked for that. And Hashem gave him the wisdom to be the, the wise King Solomon, okay? Because that's the main bracha. When you have awareness of Hashem, which means your eyes are open to the meaning of your life, you understand the depth of what's happening. You see things on a, on a, on a more intimate level with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, So automatically things fit in life. You, whatever comes your way is part of the pr- procedure. You don't have to feel, oh, I'm missing this. I'm out of this. Oh, if I only had this, I'm starving. Everything that Hashem sends you is exactly what you need. And you see it. You're accepting it. That's the best bracha. So they asked him afterwards, okay, you're saying bracha. When a person has a bracha, that is the vessel to receive the infinite life. Fine. But they said to him, Miyemar. Miyemar means the little translation. Who says who says what you're saying is right? Miyemar, the word Yemar can also mean an exchange. Tmura. Hamara. In Israel, when it changes, you look for money change. It's called Hamarat Matbeya. A money changer, money exchange. Exchange. The word Hamar is exchange. What do they say to him? Mi Yemar. In order to reach Bracha. That the hands are really activating blessing at that level, which will be a prerequisite to perceive the infinite light, meaning I can have light in my life constantly and be happy with everything going on. I need first to descend in a place, a realm, a domain called the exchanged chambers. This is a concept and discussed in the Zohar, which means this is what the Yetzirah is called, the evil. He's cunning because he's able to fool people. If the Yetzirah would come dressed now as a Gestapo and Asa Reddish and with all the guns and he tried to, to win you over, he won't win because you see your enemy clearly. You won't fall for his trap because you know he's a bad guy. What does the Yetzirah do? He comes, Rabbi Nachman says, of a big strimal, big payas, he comes like a big, from the Kedusha to make you fall. The Yetzirah knows that he can't get you of bad, so he switches, he switches, he, he exchanges the good for bad the right with wrong, the pure with impure, permissible, forbidden. He tells you what's really forbidden is really permissible, and what's really permissible is really forbidden, and he gets you upset now. We're going to develop this with the ship. Okay? So they, they asked him, in order for a person to reach what's called bracha, a person has to be exposed to these challenges of life where they exchange. And the whole goal of the exchanges of the evil side is for one thing and one thing alone. To break a person and get them depressed. Because by Hashem, by the Torah, the highest attribute a person can have is to be happy. Where do we see that? Coming up in Parashat Kitavo. Kitavo coming up lists all these curses, 98 curses. And if you don't serve Hashem, whatever, you get this, you get that, you'll eat your children, all these crazy things. And at the end, it says there, why is all this happening? Tachat asher lo avadetem et Hashem elokechem besimcha uftuv levav. The verse says, all this will befall you, God forbid, because you didn't serve Hashem with joy. It doesn't say because you didn't serve Hashem. Period. It says because you didn't serve Hashem with joy. Because like the the Litvaks always make fun of the breast of us. Where does it say it's a big mitzvah? Mitzvah gedol aliyad besimcha tamid. Where does it say it's a big mitzvah to be simcha? I count all the six hundred thirteen mitzvah. I don't see mitzvah gedol aliyad besimcha. There's a mitzvah, six hundred thirteen mitzvah, and it's a mitzvah gedola. Mitzvah gedola is in a different ballgame. The mitzvah gedola, a big mitzvah, is the cup for the other six hundred thirteen, which is hinted to in this verse. The curses, all this will befall you. Tachat asher lo avadatem. All this will happen. We don't care for serving Hashem or not. We're care, we're concerned by your attitude. If Judaism becomes a burden, ugh, I can't handle this anymore. And that, you lost. That's it. You fell into the sadness and the atzvud and the, and the lethargy and the negativity. That's the beginning of the downfall. Where's the simcha? Judaism, Rav Nosen says, is not meant to be a burden. It's not a burden. Right? It's not a burden. It's an opportunity. And it's true joy. The way of the Torah is not demanding, oh, but I can't handle these kosher rules and, and Shabbat rules and modesty rules. It's just too much rules, you know. Give me a, give me a, a room to breathe. We say every day, Rabbi Chananya, 
Torah and Mitzvot. Rabbi Hananiah ben Akashah says the following. Hashem wanted to bring merit to the Jewish people. So what did he do? He gave them tons of Torah and Mitzvot. Rav Nosen asks, that's a merit? That's a burden. Hashem wanted to give merit, so what did he do? He gave us tons of Torah and Mitzvot. Why are you giving me a weight of tons of Torah and Mitzvot? It's a burden. It's not a, it's not a merit. So he says just opposite. Because there's so many mitzvot in the life of a Jew, it works out, and it turns out that whenever a Jew just turns and does a tiny movement, he's directly or indirectly doing a mitzvah, whether aware of it or unaware of it. Sometimes you open the door for an elderly lady, and you get their ten mitzvot. You got one mitzvah for this, one mitzvah for that, all of a sudden you have combinations of mitzvot. The Mishnah Bura, for example, in his book, in the, the section called he lists six mitzvot that a Jew can do constantly by just thought. If you think this way about Hashem, you've got a mitzvah here. You think there's so many, many mitzvot in the life of a Jew that basically a Jew is surrounded practically, basically 24-7 with mitzvot. Tons of mitzvot in the life of a Jew. Whether he knows about it, he doesn't even know about it, okay? So we have access to all these unbelievable mitzvot, okay? Now, the Yitzhara, his goal is that we don't feel that happiness, that we get depressed, look what you're doing, you're wasting your time, you're upside down, you can't get out of bed, and this, and nothing's working in life, and where are you advancing, what did becoming religious help you, look even worse than before, he's able to break a person with morale, break his morale, make him feel down, and dejected, and futile, that is the work of the Yetzara. So they said to him, Mi Emar, who has the audacity, the chutzpah, the courage to descend to the exchange chambers where the danger is you can risk losing everything. But that is the prerequisite to come to bracha. Because the reason why we, we are set up in darkness, this world is considered darkness. The, the, the Jewish day, by the way, begins, Vayerev, Vayiboker. Look at Parshat Bereshit, the creation of the world, the six days. What does it say? And first there was night. And there was day, one day, day one. And there was night, and there was day, day two. The Jewish day, the, the day of this world, starts with darkness and then light. Meaning, the starting point of every Jew is within the darkness. The Al-Sheikh, Al-Sheikh HaKadosh, he says, he points out that the human being, Hashem designed the human being, that the pupil of the eye where sight comes from is black. It's dark. Why? Because it's the nature of a person to see things negative. It's the nature, it's status quo to see things down. That's why we go on the bus, we go on TTC, everyone's Tisha B'Av every day. Tisha B'Av, Subway, Tisha B'Av, down to her. Everyone's Tisha B'Av, down, down, everyone's negative, negative. Because that's how people are. Simcha has to be built. And Yetzirah doesn't want that. Because that's the key for everything. If you have Simcha in life, you have everything in life. And they asked him, who can has the courage to go down to the exchange chambers to be besimcha and elevate what's trapped there. What's trapped in the exchange chamber is the domain of evil, what's called holy sparks, holiness. Holiness is trapped there, and this holiness is the prerequisite to get the bracha of the hands. But in order to get it, you have to be exposed to the challenge of the exchange chambers. He answered them, my key for being happy, he said is, Aitu ashle umoshchu. Translation, bring a cord and measure. What's he saying? Aitu you, the enemies, you, the 60 wise men of Athens who are representing the evil in this world, Ashta, you will bring us, the Jewish people, who we are called Chevel Nachalato. We're called the cord, the rope of Hashem's inheritance. Why are the Jewish people called the rope? Because we're made up of three cords. Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, a triple cord that can't be torn, it can't be broken. That's our foundation. That's, our, that's what we're based on. So he said, Rabbi Shem don't worry, in time to come, when Mashiach comes, you will bring us, the Jewish people, I to Ashley, Umoshu. The word Moshu is to be to measure, but the measurement here is referring to a verse by King David in the book of Samuel, Shmuel Aleph, where King David was able to conquer Moab and he lied them on the ground, and he measured them and then he cut them, he cut them to pieces based on the measurement. So Medida means to cut off the evil. Meaning what Rabbi Shabbat Hanina said, in order to activate joy while being thrown into the confusions of life, I have to borrow this joy from somewhere else. From where? From the future redemption. Once somebody asked Rav Nosen, he said, listen, I can't serve Hashem. I can't be a good Jew. I'm so depressed. I'm going through so many tzuris in my life, so many difficulties and problems. I can't be happy. How am I supposed to be happy? 
I can't get out of bed in the morning. I can't do anything. I'm just so upside down. How can I be happy with my life? So much crazy, crazy things are happening in my life. So Rav Nosson told the, the, the chassid, you have to borrow the joy from the future. You have to borrow the joy from the future. Meaning what? Whenever you are going through what you're going through, the reason why it's negative and difficult, because the situation you're looking from this, uh, when, you could look, when you look at something close, you see there's a black dot here, there's a scratch over here, push it a little bit farther, I see less the little markings and the blemishes. Push farther, I see less. Meaning, when you look at what you're going through in life, and you stop for a second, and you look at your life as one millionth above piece of film in the 6,000th sketch of history, and you see what you're going through is just a tiny piece leading up to the end, when Mashiach will finally come, what will be when Mashiach comes? There's going to be unlimited joy. We're going to leave with joy. The Jews of Toronto are going to fly to Eretz Yisrael with singing and all the dancing and the banjos and the violins, whatever. You know, it'll be a lot of simcha when Mashiach comes. It's going to be complete simcha. A complete simcha that any joy taking place in the world is emanating from the future joy. Whenever Hashem, Rabbi Nachman teaches, whenever Hashem wants to save a person, He sends him light from the future redemption, which is so complete, it's enough to help a person in any challenge he's going through in the present. So the solution is here, taking the joy from the future. You stop, and I look, wow, in the end, everything is going to work out. So what does that mean? Person's crying, oh my God, this family member has, has, has a terminal cancer, oh my God, and I, I, now I'm going to pay the bills, now I have no money coming in, they stole my car, oh my God. When you look at what you're going through, you're crying, but wait a second, if you know that in the end, everything is going to work out, so why are you crying now? Because it hurts, okay, so stop looking like this, push it away, push it farther, okay, do you feel the pain more? No, less pain, push it farther, farther, take a break, relax, look at the whole picture. When you look at the whole picture of life, and you see that, in the end, Hashem's going to have His way. In the end, everything's going to work out. In the end, our cycle of life is going to lead to something worthwhile. The enemies, the people who are bad, evil, who did wrong to the world, to society, they're going to be obliterated, obliterated, and the good will shine. And everything I went through, there'll be a payoff. All the suffering and the setbacks, there's going to be a payoff of ultimate joy. So if that's the case, why are you so broken now? Why do you have to look at your life ending at age 70, age 80, age 90, 120? Why don't you look at the bigger picture? Ah, you need Emuna. Okay, so work on Emuna. <laughs> Emuna is the key here, fine. But look at the whole picture, that your life is just a pre preparation for the final picture where everything will work out in the end. So if that's the case, why take things negative? I heard recently a story of a mother and a daughter. They went through the whole Holocaust together from beginning to end, and they survived together. And her secret was, she was always laughing. They, they brought her to Auschwitz and that. Everybody's sad, everybody's panicking. This lady was cracking up. The Germans couldn't figure out this lady. Why is she cracking up? And she was always laughing and laughing. She got through every stage. They asked her after the Holocaust, why were you laughing? She said, she was a, a, a believer. She was a religious Jew. She said, I saw Hashem's going to have his way in the end. Hashem's going to wipe out all these. I'm laughing. because said, what's waiting for you? They have on display in Yerushalayim, you have on Mount Zion, out of the old city, there's where the grave of King David is, there's the Diaspora Yeshiva, and there's the original Yad Vashem, it's called the Martef HaShoah, the, the, the chamber of the Holocaust. They have there, on display, some amazing stuff there. One thing they have there is a jacket made from a Sefer Torah. And the story is, you're laughing already because you know the story, right? There's, the story is, I said this once a few times already. A jacket, a jacket made from a Sefer Torah, where the Gestapo forced the Jewish tailor to take a Sefer Torah and make a jacket out of it in order to break the morale of the Jews. So what did the tailor do? He took all the curses from Parshat Kitavo, Arur, 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 put on the back. So when the Gestapo was walking with the jacket, he said on his back, cursed, 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 okay, all the curses. So they had the last laugh. You know, he's trying to bring them down, but the Jews, he can't read Hebrew, and they see on the back, Arur, cursed, 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 all the curses on, on him, right? What's the idea? That she saw that in the end, these people are going to be destroyed. In the end, Hashem's going to have His way. So why should I be sad? It's a stage which is painful, seemingly, temporarily. But if it sucks me into sadness, it's not worth it. It's not worth getting pulled into the sadness of the present situation if it breaks me. So what's the solution, he says, to borrow the joy from the future? When you borrow the joy from the future, Rav Nosson says, you get strength from a higher level. 
And now with this door, you're not running away from your problems and your challenges. And now because you're infused with a strong, solid joy coming from a higher level, you're able to face now your challenges. And more than that, he guarantees, Rav Nosen, is this, what, this is the answer that Rabbi Shemachani was saying to the wise men of Athens, that through the future joy, I can pass the exchange chambers and get out, and which means I can get out of all the difficulties that I'm going through in my life through simcha. The simcha can be the key. Why we went through all this was to get to this point. The Rav Nosen adds, the main, main way the Yetzahara gets to people today through the exchange chambers, it's what's called false fear. What is false fear? False fear is where a person, he's committed to serving Hashem, he knows what's right and what's wrong, but then he stumbles, he falls. And he learns what the Torah says, that for this, this there's this punishment, you do this, you Michal Shabbat, there's this punishment and everything. And a person, especially today, in these last generations, people fall, and what's the result, what's the aftermath, the ensuing feeling of guilt. I did this, I did that, I did terrible things, I screamed at my wife, I did this, I did all these terrible things that I feel bad about, right? And that's why he uses this yira, meaning you know this fear of punishment, you know that good gets rewarded and bad gets punished, and even for tiny things, and you know what to, what's, what's right, to do right is right, and to do wrong is wrong, and you begin to feel bad of the wrong that you did, even unintentionally, but you feel bad about it. And this is how the Yitzhar gets the most majority of people today. He inf- infuses them with a false yirah. Which means what? Even though it's yirah shamayim, it's fear of heaven, with the fear of heaven itself, he's able to break people. Rav Nosini says, this is something very common today, that you have people who really want to be a committed Jew, but they see the tests they're going through, and they're so far, and they cr- collapse and crash so many times, and the Yitzhar makes him, like, you see, you're doomed. You're finished. Like, what, what do, what do uh, secular Jews who were once religious fall off, oh, what's, oh, oh, what's called off the derech? OTD. Yeah. OTD. Uh, what, what was their main argument and excuse why they fell off? I couldn't stand my parents telling me, you're going to burn in Gehenam. You're going to do this. You're going you're gonna to fall. You know, if you don't keep Shabbat Kikosha, you're going to burn. So the Yira was used in an improper way. Making the person so broken, you keep on making it negative and negative and negative. So what does it say in the Rashi says in the Chumash? When a person serves Hashem out of Yira, what happens? You just squeeze him too much. He says, the age the of this, I don't need this anymore. Leave me alone. I don't need this garbage. I don't need this Torah. I don't need this Judaism. Just leave me alone. This is how the Yitzhak gets the majority of people today. When we see today secular Jews, where did it start? We can say it started maybe two generations ago, three generations ago. But when it started, what was the test that they had? that led to what we're into today, it was the test of Judaism that they know it's wrong, and they were in a situation where they fell, and Yetzirah makes them feel even worse about it. He uses the Yira, the Yetzirah itself, to break a person, to crash him. This is the biggest test of the Yetzirah today. That's how he gets people. He gets people by getting this so strict. This is especially true, for example, of Baal Tshuvas. You have, you have people who do Tshuva. So the average, typical example is when they do Tshuva, they go extreme. They want to do super kosher, super religious, super everything. And then what happens? They crash, right? You see a guy about tshuva. He starts wearing the nice long pants and he has a nice bekesh and everything. And then 20 years down, he's now completely skinhead and has earrings, no keep on the head. What happened? He had a crash. Why did he have a crash? Because he went so high that when he was taken away from it, the Yetzirah made him feel so bad about everything. You see, you did this, you did this wrong. And the guilt ate him up so badly that he just dropped everything. I don't need this. It was too overwhelming. That's how the Yetzirah gets the majority of people today. It's called a false yira. This, of Nelson said, is the main attack of the exchange chambers today. This is how he gets the majority of people who try to enter the world of Torah, of Judaism. But they say it's so difficult and it's so like punishing and everything. Rav Nelson had a son, Rav Yitzchak. And he started learning the book called Reshit Chochmah. Reshit Chochmah is a book written by a Rav. He's buried in Hebron. who was a student of, uh, of the Kabbalist, the Ramak in Tzfat. This book talks about all the punishments that a person has to go through. What happens to a person when they bury him? All the stages of, of purification and pain and everything. It's a scary book. Rav Yitzchak told his father, 
And also it's Musa. It talks about how a person has to work on his kaas, his anger and humility and his holiness and, and emuna and the punishment for not doing so. So Ritzchak told his father, you know, when I read this book, I get depressed. I get depressed. Rav Nosen told his son like this. The author of the book, Rashid Chochmah, had no intent whatsoever to get you depressed. If now you can't learn the book without getting depressed, so don't learn it. Learn something else. Learn something else. Don't say, well, I have to. You have people, for example, when it comes to like a Holocaust memorial, they think it's a mitzvah to get sad and depressed and to see Holocaust videos and to be negative and everything. No, no, no. There's no mitzvah to get negative. I'm sorry. If it, now it's going to make you, you're already struggling to be happy and now you just add more burden to make you even worse, what do you gain, right? This Rav Nosin explains that this is how the Yetzirah gets to people today. What's our weapon? Is to use this the opposite. For example... When the Yetzirah tries to tell a person, because again, the Yetzirah, what is he after? The Yetzirah is not after a person falling. He's after the aftermath of the depression and guilt that a person feels. That's what he wants. That's, that's the goal. To get him feeling negative, then he has him in his hands, okay? So Rav Nosen says, we use the trick of the Yetzirah, we throw it back on his face, saying what? When the Yetzirah tells me after falling in life, a person he falls, okay? He has a down. He did something which was morally wrong, automatically against the Torah, ethically wrong. According to the Torah and Mitzvah, he did something which was wrong, and he feels bad about it, right? Yetzirah makes him feel bad about it. And he said, look at you, you're doomed, you're finished. So the person says, just the opposite. Someone so low as me, because what Yetzirah, Yetzirah says to the person, stop serving Hashem. You see now, you're not going to make it anyways. You keep on falling. You're trying to lose weight for 50 years already. You just keep on eating like a shmil, sh- shlamazl, and you keep on getting fat and everything. And you never work on yourself. And you're always down. And you're always this. And you're always that. Just stop already. Forget it. Just give in already, right? So stop with just Torah and mitzvot and trying to connect to Hashem. Stop. Stop these tiny things. It's not getting you anywhere in life. So Rav Nosen says we use this exact logic against Yetzirah. And we say just the opposite. Because I'm so far, I need the mitzvot. Yes, Nachon, it's true, I'm far and everything. But just because I'm so far doesn't mean I have to drop everything. My life source is the Torah. I know that, I say that, I believe in that. And you Yetzirah, you're kind of trying to tell me that just drop everything because it's not going anyways. You see you're not succeeding. You're not becoming the tzaddik that you wanted to become. You're not reaching your ambitions and goals that you had set in the beginning. Just drop it already. And we say just opposite. Because I'm so far, I need the Torah. You cannot tell me to drop it totally. I need it. Just an analogy on this point. There was a, a man in pre-World War I Poland in the city called Sokolov. His name was Rav Nachum Schuster. This Nachum Schuster literally knew nothing. He just knew how to read the Hebrew alphabet. He knew no Torah, no Mishnah, no Chumash, no laws, nothing. Like we say in Moroccan, wallow. He knew absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And he got hooked up with some Hasidim and they opened up his eyes to the devotion of getting up at midnight to mourn over the destruction of the Holy Temple. And he felt that this is something that he wants to start doing. So after the Rosh Hashanah and the High Holidays and the Chagim, he started coming to the local Beit Midrash, to the women's section every midnight to sit on the floor and to recite what's called, the dirges called Tikkun Chatzot, the midnight lament to mourn over the destruction of the Temple. He had no idea what he was saying, but he was crying out the words, screaming out the words. And at that time, there was a group of Torah scholars who were learning all day and into the night up to midnight. So, when they would be leaving to go home at midnight, he would come. They were asking themselves, what is this Nachum, this simple Amaretz, what's he doing coming here? Let's see what he's here for. So they, exa- they, they observed what he was doing. They saw him sitting in the women's section of the shul and he sat on the floor and he was screaming in the dirges. They, they, they couldn't handle this. He said, well, he doesn't even know how to read. What is he doing this devotion which is like reserved for big tzaddikim? You know, let him do more simple things. So they couldn't control themselves. They couldn't keep themselves in. They approached him. They said, Rav Nachum, why are you doing this? Why are you, do, why are you mourning over the temple? You know, better take a course 101 on learning Mishnayot or Chumash or Halacha. Go to a Torah class instead of these devotions. You know, do something which is more at your level. What are you doing this? So he said to them like this. You guys have everything. You guys learn all day into the night. You guys don't need the Beit HaMikdash. Me, I have absolutely nothing. Look, what, like you're telling me. I know how to learn nothing. I need the Beit HaMikdash. I need the Beit HaMikdash. This is the idea we're trying to say here. That's what it tells you. Just drop it already. Drop, drop your ambitions. Stop, stop to keep on going. And we say, no. Uh, there's no other alternative. This, this is what I have. This is my life. 
this is this because I'm so far. I specifically do need to continue in Torah and Yiddishkeit and doing good things and trying to arrive at my ambitions, even though I'm not succeeding. Still, this is what I need. I'm so far. I use your psychology and make it reverse psychology, and I use it to attack you. This is the story. This is the outline. Everything we said tonight is based on a lesson from Rabbi Nachman in his book called Likute Moran, lesson number 24. I now present to you the 40-day challenge, Bezat Hashem. Rabbi Nachman's book, Likute Moran, where this lesson was taken from, this whole story of Rabbi Shomer Hananya and what we discussed and the fallen fears and the exchange chambers and sadness and all of the, everything we spoke about in that, these ideas are taken from, like I said, lesson 24 of Likute Moran. This book sticks out differently than any other area of the Torah. For example, to explain, when you learn Torah, when a person now goes to a class in Gemara or Mishnah, you have to struggle to understand the Torah. You are going towards the Torah. You're taking yourself to try to break your head to understand what Rashi is saying, what the Chumash is saying, what the Parsha is saying. You are now working to go towards the Torah. You're disappearing and entering the world of the Torah. Chasidut, and in particular Rabbi Nachman's teachings, is just the opposite direction. He takes the highest ideas beyond the Kabbalah even and brings it to you. You will learn these teachings. What's unique about this book is that as you're learning these teachings, they come to life. It's something which cannot be explained unless, unless a person himself experiences this. You learn this book, all of a sudden, things happen in your life and you have to be a dodo brain not to see the connection, but they're directly connected to what you're learning. You learn these ideas, all of a sudden, this guy calls me about this idea. Oh, it's so obvious. I was just learning about it here, and he's bringing this up to me, and this and that. All these things come to life. Okay, but so what? Okay, great. Fine. I want now self-help. I want to develop myself. I want to come to joy. I want to have the strength of being ha- able to handle the challenges of the Hechalat the exchange chambers. I want, to, I want to be strong. I want to activate this. You give me signs and say my name, very nice, fine and dandy, but I want to change. It's like, for example, somebody has, God forbid, a malady, has like a skin disease on his chasisham, his left elbow, whatever, and it was a very expensive cream that he had to buy, $500. So finally, he got the 500 bucks. He goes to the pharmacy, he buys the cream, he comes out, where you be? I got the cream. You idiot. Apply to the, to the wound. You buy the cream, okay, you have the antidote, you have the medication, you have the remedy, but apply it to where it's needed. So too, the Likute Moran activates in a klali format, in a general format, the, the antidote, the, the remedies, the medicines that you need for your spiritual healing. If it's the advice of Simcha, if it's the, the skill and technique, how to be positive and fight the exchange chambers and do the challenges of life, I, I can activate them in a general level, but I want to direct them in specific areas of my life. This second stage is what Rabbi Nachman calls La'asot mitorot tfilot to re-explain, to reformat the Torah of the Tzaddikim. When we say Torah of the Tzaddikim, we're talking about these teachings of Chassidut, in particular Rabbi Nachman's teachings, where he's coming down to you and activating them, to now daven about it, to pray about it, and these prayers, since they're based on these ideas, these concepts, they begin to move mountains. It's something phenomenal that you can only relate to by tasting it out testing it out and, and, and trying it out. There's only two books in the Torah world that have prayers written on them. The first is the Chumash itself, the five books of Moshe, Bereshit, Shmot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Dvarim. The Gemara says, have on them, corresponding to them, the five books in Tehilim. King David, along with the other tzaddikim who were with him, they composed the books, the prayers, supplications, the psalms, the requests, the screamings, the praising that appear in the five books of Tehillim on the five books of the Chumash. What does that mean? That means all of the struggles presented by King David and other tzaddikim in the book of Tehillim is crying out to Hashem to fulfill what's written in the five books of the Chumash. 
that the battles of the enemies, the physical enemies expressed in the book of Psalms, is really the spiritual enemies preventing me and the physical enemies preventing us, Ammon, Moab, Amalek, all the enemies, Edom, that King David mentions in the book of Tehillim, these are the physical and spiritual enemies preventing me from fulfilling what's written in Bereshit, what's written in Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Dvarim. The only other book in Torah history, in Torah world, that has prayers written on them, is this book by Rabbi Nachman called Likutei Tfilot. Rav Nosen, his disciple, wrote prayers on these lessons. These prayers are like, okay, I'm davening already Shacharit, I daven already Tehillim, I say my daily Siddharam, what do you want from me? These prayers stick out totally, that when you read them, they come to you also. They express exactly what you're going through. In fact, they express you better than you can yourself. When you read these prayers from Rav Nosen, something unbelievable happens and you see that he's beginning to open you up. He's doing an open, sur- open heart surgery on you. He took the words right out of my mouth. He's able to express you better than yourself. We've prepared two PDF files for distribution. Okay? One PDF file is, first of all, the text of this lesson in Hebrew and English. You can read it and recite it, learn it in any language, in Hebrew and English, along with Rav Nosen's prayer on the lesson. And we presented a second PDF of a chart, a Google chart, a Google map chart here, of a 40-day breakdown. Why 40 days, by the way? 40 days is considered a unit to get things happening in life. The classic example is what we saw in the Parsha two weeks ago. Moshe Rabbeinu, after the sin of the golden calf, he went up to Daven for the Jews 40 days and 40 nights. Lechem lo achalti, maim lo shatiti, didn't eat, they didn't drink. Until after 40 days, Hashem said, Salachti kidvarecha. Sorry? 40 days, yeah. 40 days, the unit was activated by Moshe Rabbeinu to bring forth the forgiveness. And from this we learn it's a Torah idea that davening for 40 days straight gets things moving in life. You have to try it out. To daven for unique, specific items. But in our context, these type of prayers and reciting them, going over them, we designed a format that's not overburdening, that's not too much. But for 40 days to go over this prayer with this lesson, to see it change in your life. This is the 40-day challenge. To say this lesson and the prayer, 40 days, but not, again, it's long. It could be long, technically. This, we're talking about between 15 minutes to up to an hour a day. Depends how much time you have, how much you want to invest in this. And the challenge is to see what we're mentioning here, to see the change in your life. You may see a big change. You may see a small change. You may see a change in different areas of your life. That these items were needed to daven about and to work on to activate other things in life. It's a challenge to see what will wake up. But definitely, definitely, there will be a change. So, we have these two PDF files. I'm available to explain if there's any more questions. Please, please contact me. There's people online, so I have to tell them about it also. Uh, you can get, again, it's free of charge, obviously. Okay, it's nothing to worry about here. The first PDF, the second one, you can contact me by email. It's breastlovetherapy, B-R-E-S-L-O-V therapy at gmail.com. Or by WhatsApp, it's an American number, 732-800-1863. Give Rabbi Nachman a chance. Give this tzaddik a chance to touch parts of your neshama that are dormant that you didn't know about. Levels of energy that you have that you never used. And you're instead you're just living a, 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 like a matrix type of life, an imaginary existence, not knowing your real potential. Let Rabbi Nachman help you open up to a, a bigger experience of what it means to connect to Hashem at a level that you never had in your life. Let him help the healing, which is the, the healing of the Torah, the healing of the tzaddikim. It's my wish that you should see transformations in your life, especially in the area of Simcha, at least as much as I have in my personal life. Uh, I hope you use this, and we should only see good things come out of this. Amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi Elkabaz, for, for that uh, incredible Torah and inspiration. Um, I want to just point out, uh, everybody, if you don't mind, that uh, there's a sheet over here that... Uh, talk. Recording stopped. Sorry about that.